Welcome, everyone, to today's big picture. We're going to discuss the 2023 forecast, which we are titling under the main theme of turbulence and volatility. Yeah, that's right. 2022 was volatile as well, but we think things are going to continue to be volatile into this year's as well, especially when you consider what some of the forecasts are out there. So, Jim, let's start off talking about how bad 2022 was to put things into context. Yeah, what made 2022 different than other years that we've seen in the market, Chris, is the 60-40 split. 60% stocks, 40% bonds did not work in 2022 because the bond market got hit hard. But actually, if we take a look at all the major indexes, the best performing index was the Dow. The Dow was down about 8.8%. And actually, if you look at the dogs of the Dow, they were actually up a couple percent for the year. So when you get into this risk of recession and risk, money gravitates to higher quality, which is reflected in the stocks of the Dow, which are all paying, for the most part, dividends. Now, if you take a look at where all the money was being made prior to 2022, it was in the NASDAQ, it was in the FANG stocks. And we had the worst single year for the NASDAQ in several decades. The NASDAQ was down 33.1%. Here's what makes things bad. You throw in the bond market, global bonds lost 16.2%. Treasuries, you know, usually in the past when the market was going down, we were heading towards a recession. The Fed was raising interest rates. The bond market would rally and the, basically the returns from bonds would help offset some of the losses. That did not happen. The treasury market was down almost 17.6%. And Chris, I don't care where you looked in the bond market. If you look at, for example, global inflation index bonds, they were down 23%. Emerging market debt down 15%. High yield down 13%. Euro bonds down 17%. And uh, all across corporate credits down 13%. So you weren't getting any help from the bond market. And if you were in the FANG stocks, if we look at Facebook or Meta, it went from 343 down to 120, a loss of 65%. And a stock that I follow very closely to give me a readout on what's happening in, with consumers is Amazon. Amazon went from 171 down to 84 down 51% for the year. This week, Amazon just announced another 18,000 workers layoff. And we all remember last summer when Jeff Bezos came out and said, it's time to hunker down. Things are going to get rough. So Amazon gives you a good glimpse of what's going on with the consumer. And then you take a look at other FANG stocks. Netflix down from 610 to 295, down 52%. Alphabet, down from 152 to 88, down 42%. And even Apple lost close to 30%. So, and it just wasn't there. If you looked at other markets around the globe, they were easily down. The European markets, you had them down anywhere from 15 to 17%. But the worst performing market last year was the NASDAQ, which was where all the hot money and the index funds, that's where that was going. And I, I believe, Chris, 2022 marks the end of passive indexing investments. And I think you're going to see a more volatile decade and turbulent decade this decade where passive is not going to work. 
Yeah, and you mentioned a number of the different FANG stocks that got hit so hard as part of that NASDAQ down 33% for 2022. I mean, Tesla, which we also discussed this week on FS Insider, airing an interview from a couple years ago, you know, we talked about the bearish case for Tesla, given the fact that it had gotten up to uh, over a thousand on its PE valuation. That is, its stock price is trading at over a thousand times earnings. I mean, that's ridiculous. So that's uh, very characteristic of a bubble, like we saw in uh, 2000. And of course, we've seen Tesla now down over 70% from its high of 2022, over 400 down to in the $100 range. So that's another stock that's been hit pretty hard. People looking at Elon Musk, blaming him for uh, perhaps some of his eccentricities, buying of Twitter and things like that, that may have been a cause for Tesla's losses. But again, you know, I mean, we were talking about this just a couple years back on how valuations were just so extremely stretched on Tesla and a number of these big tech names. So it's the way uh, bubbles work. They go way too high on the upside and then they collapse on the downside. That's what we're seeing today. So what did work for 2022 for investors? I mean, what really worked if you were in cash at the beginning of the year and stayed in cash? The good news is as we got into the third and fourth quarter, you're finally getting a return on your money with the exception of a bank. If you're in bank CDs, banks did not raise uh, their interest rate that they offered consumers. But if you were in a money market fund, gradually, especially like treasury money market funds, which is what we used, because remember, we went from zero to a quarter of a point all the way up to four and a half percent on the Fed funds rate. You got T-bill rates that are almost at 4.9%. So at least you got a return on cash. The other thing that worked well two years in a row was oil, number one performing sector in the market, oil stocks. I mean, we've seen Exxon go from 32 to 112, Chevron go from 65 to over 180. All the big oil stocks really took off in 2022. Now, Ari Wald believes that, our technician this week, believes that it's rare that you see energy perform three years in a row uh, we think that's going to be proven to be false this year. We see energy as another stellar performer. But oil, cash, and healthcare seem to work well. And high dividend paying stocks as represented by the Dow. For example, the dogs of the Dow were actually up 2%. But certainly, in my mind, there's two things that happened. Number one, it changed the 60-40 portfolio mix. That may work the latter part of this year because we see bonds doing well in the first half. We'll get to that in a moment. And uh, But certainly one of those years, I think it's the end of passive indexing. If you were in an index fund, you got clobbered. If you were in the queues, you lost 33%. If you were in the S&P, you lost over 20%. So quite a year of losses for investors in just about every single sector of investing, whether it was commodities, with the exception of oil, you know, even the precious metals did well in the first three months of the year, but then corrected for most of the balance of the year. So a year of losses, heavy losses for investors here in the bond market, the stock market and globally. So again, we're talking about the forecast for 2023. That's what we saw for 2022. But we would be remiss if we did not talk about the Fed as part of this conversation, because clearly when we think about what we saw with interest rate hikes in light of inflation, of course, 
uh, that was really the major disruptor, not just for the FANG stocks, but uh, across global markets. So let's talk about what we saw from the Fed and how this relates to the broader outlook. Yeah, it was probably the fastest rate hike in half a century. The only time I can think of anything close to this, Chris, was 1994, when the Fed took the Fed funds rate from 3 to 6%. And the reason they did that is they got their inflation forecast wrong. They thought it was transitory. You saw that coming out from Janet Yellen. You saw it coming from Jerome Powell. And I think as we got to the middle of the year, the Fed woke up and said, whoa, this is not transitory. And that's when they began punching through those 75 basis point rate hikes. We got four of them and they took the Fed funds rate. Think about this from zero and a quarter to four and a quarter and four and a half in a single year. So the real question going forward now is how high will the Fed have to raise interest rates? And one of the big things, as we are doing the show this Friday, the reason the market is rallying is the ISM service index, which has been staying up right around that 55 level, dropped five or six points and is now in recession territory, which is why you're seeing this big rally in the market on this Friday. So the question is, how high will they take the Fed funds rate? Number two, how long will they stay there? Number three, will economic growth slow down or will the U.S. fall into recession? The LEIs we'll get to in just a moment are speaking loudly with nine consecutive months, a drop in the LEIs. They're saying recession is out there. Now, the real question is, with the Fed raising rates as aggressively as they have, you have to ask yourself the question, what could go wrong? Well, number one, economic growth could prove more persistent than expected. Because remember, with Trump, he increased spending with COVID by $3 trillion. The Biden administration has just increased spending by $7.5 trillion, including the $1.7 trillion of new stimulus they passed in December, by the way, with Republican support. So a lot of that money is still being shoveled into the economy. So fiscal policy is highly inflationary. Number two, energy security and prices. Putin, for example, could begin weaponizing oil as they try to put a cap on the sale of Russian oil. And he's saying he's not going to stand for it. He'll go around that. China could end its zero COVID policy and put a demand on energy, which surges against a limited supply. And that's the key thesis that I came up with in 2020. Why I wrote that article from Oil Glot to Oil Crisis was the lack of investment had been cut in half since 2014 by the major oil companies and including many of the OPEC countries were not putting money into new discoveries or expanding production. The other thing I think is going to be a big issue going forward is fiscal policy is steering close to a U.S. debt crisis by mid-decade or beyond. I mean, alone, Social Security is going to take almost 25% of government tax revenues, not talking about Medicare. Also, when you go from zero to 4.5% on the Fed funds rate, all that treasury debt that is rolling over, they're talking about interest expense this year, could be anywhere from $700 billion or more in interest as this debt rolls over. So that's another major issue. The other issue coming from the Fed, when you hear about this Fed portfolio of $8.6 trillion, 
the Fed earns interest on those bonds. And what they do is they take that interest, they pay their own bills, and what's left over, they remit to Congress, which helps to reduce the deficit. Well, in 2022, the Fed went from making $100 billion, remitting that to the Treasury in 2021, they went to losing $100 billion in 2022, which is one reason the deficit is growing. We're soon to be crossing $32 trillion in debt. And it's hard to believe three years ago, Chris, we were at $20 trillion, And here we are three years later, we're at $32 trillion. And I think it was the month of December, the budget deficit was $259 billion, the largest monthly deficit in U.S. history. You know, Jim, it's interesting, as you were talking about earlier with the fastest rate hiking cycle that we've seen in a half century, you know, that set the stage for a lot of the turbulence that we saw in the markets for 2022, particularly hitting the tech sector. But that's the first place that we saw that, at least in terms of the market. And now the expectation is that's going to continue working its way through the economy because Fed rate policy works with long and variable lags, taking anywhere from 12 to 18 months. And this is something that Michael Kantrowitz at Piper Sandler has discussed many times with this HOPE framework. We've spoken with them on FS Insider about this framework and how to understand the impacts moving forward. But here's a clip of what he said just yesterday on CNBC to put all this in context of what we should expect for 2023. So tell us, I mean, and and again, a tip of the hat, because you were one of the early ones looking at these PMIs rolling over and saying, hey, this is bad news. What are you seeing now? Uh, we're seeing the story continuing to evolve. Uh, I'd say, you know, as, as the calendar year turns, uh, we're moving into the next chapter of this same story. It's not a new story. So yes, our, our HOPE framework, housing orders, profits, employment, it was really housing and orders that got knocked around last year, and that's continued into this year, and we expect that to continue throughout uh, much of this year. And now the focus is going to become increasingly and has become increasingly on earnings and employment. Uh, We're all talking about employment cuts. We're starting to see them, uh, and we expect that to broaden out, uh, especially pick up sharply in the the second half of this year. Let's talk a little bit about how you see the the economy you predict affecting stock prices this year. I believe you have a, a rather aggressive downside prediction. Depends on how you look at it and what your framework is. Uh, and our framework led us last year to have a pretty low target as well of 3,400. We got about 91 points from that at the September lows in the equity market. And then we got a bear market rally. Uh, and that's the tricky thing with bear markets. Uh, they're far more harder to predict than a, uh, a quiet and grinding bull market. So, um, you know, I'm not sure if we're going to end the year at 3,225, but uh, we do think that, that we will see that number before all is said and done and we do see the economy recover. I think the key, uh, the key message that you know, we're telling clients is you know, last year we've had, we, we saw a bond bear market really bang around equities, for lack of a better word. And now we're going to see the lagged effect of this bond bear market where everything mm-hmm. the Fed has done and will continue to do start to show up in earnings and eventually employment. Again, following this hope framework we've talked about. A hard landing is coming in late 2023, you say, and it's not priced in. So that means that we've got the earnings wrong and we've got the multiple wrong. Yes. Uh, you know, I think last year, again, was, mo- was all about multiple compression because of higher rates and what happened with inflation. That's not the same thing as pricing in a recession. We can mm-hmm. clearly see in the credit markets that that hasn't been the case. Mm-hmm. So this year should actually feel a little more, I don't want to use the word normal, but fundamental to investors as it becomes more about earnings. And everything we've seen in, in the rates market has its long and variable lag. And you know this is going to be the year where it starts to show up. 
So again, that's Michael Kanchowitz talking about what he expects for this year, particularly in the back half of 2023 with a big pickup in unemployment. Uh, But what are some of the things that you believe investors should watch moving forward this year? Yeah, I think one of the keys is to watch the labor market in wages. The Fed does not like seeing these wage increases that have been giving. I mean, you know, you had Exxon giving employees a 9% pay raise. A lot of companies have been increasing, obviously, to compensate for inflation. So one of the ways the Fed plans to bring down wage pressure is raise the unemployment rate. I think they want to, they'd like to see it to get over 5%, which means probably another couple million Americans are going to be losing their jobs to take some of the pressure off of the labor market. Financial conditions, the last thing the Fed wants to see is a big rally in stocks where the financial conditions loosen. They want it to remain tight because they want to reduce demand. If your stock market portfolio is going up 15 20%, you're more inclined to go spending, which will put more demand for goods, and that will be inflationary in the Fed's mind. The other thing to watch, and I saw a little bit of this in the December meeting, some FOMC members are starting to deviate from the hawkish stance saying, you know, maybe we should slow down the pace of increases and then also we should take a look at maybe going on pause, maybe not a pivot, but going on pause. So look for that spread between the hawks and the dubs to widen. And that would tell you you're getting close to an end of Fed rate hikes. Now, here's the interesting thing. When we take a look at all of this, there are a lot of assumptions here, Chris, and I want to get into the consensus economic forecast because right now, If we take a look at the consensus forecast, the probability of a recession is 65%. You have Bloomberg markets that believes by the time we get to the end of the second half of the year, it's 100% probability of a recession. Yeah, and it's interesting. We spoke with Anna Wong at Bloomberg. She's the chief economist there who talked about their 100% probability of recession. That's based on their model in, uh, I think it's by the third quarter of 2023. Now, we could see a recession before that. It's just that their model moves to uh, is a leading indicator 100% at that point in time. But again, as you said, we've now seen the ISM numbers for the manufacturing part of the economy and the services part just today fall below 50, which means we're seeing contraction in the services and the manufacturing sector. So that's a, that's a bad sign. The markets are rallying based on the idea that bad news is good news because the Fed will now soften their stance. But what are some of the economic forecasts and inflation forecasts that are being made by the consensus? Because I know you did a massive deep dive and read probably 20 different outlook pieces by all the major investment banks. So what are some of the key takeaways that came from your reading this week? You know, a couple of things that stand out. The consensus forecast for the economy is it'll grow at three-tenths of a percent. That would imply no recession. They see economic growth growing by 1.3% in 2024. So they're talking about recession, but but they're not predicting one. If we look at CPI, they believe the CPI will fall to 4% in 2023 and down to 2.5% in 2024, meaning the Fed will achieve its target of getting close to a 2% inflation rate. I disagree with that, but that's what the consensus is. The housing market will be down again. Some of these numbers, big 15, 20% drop in housing starts, new home sales and existing home sales 
down by 20 to 30%. This could be another rough year for housing, no kidding. Even though prices are coming down, mortgage rates are still relatively high based on what's going on with the 10-year note. And on this Friday, the 10-year note has dropped down from the upper 3% range. It's ending on this Friday at 356 which means that mortgage rates are still in the 5 to 6% range. Now, a couple other things. Here's one I find rather interesting. The Fed funds rate will end the year at 4.7%. Now, what that doesn't tell us, does it go up over 5 and over? And by the end of the year, the Fed is pivoting and reducing it. But they see in 2023, we end up at 4.7%. 3.3% in 24, so implying the Fed will pivot and start lowering rates. The 10-year note, they see down at 3.5. Hey, no kidding, we're already at 3.56. The two-year note is at 3.8, and right now that two-year note is at 4.26. So we're still going to be in an inversion when it comes to the Treasury markets. Now, what's interesting, the big banks, and these are the primary government bond dealers. There's 23 of them. Two-thirds of these banks are predicting a recession. Two others are predicting one in 2024. And they're citing Americans are spending down their savings and they're going into debt. And that's why I watch Amazon as a predictor of what's going on with the consumer. The housing market will continue to go in decline. I mean, what are you thinking if you're a consumer? You're seeing your stock market get hit double digits. You're seeing the value of your home decline. You're going through your cash. You're still seeing inflation at the store. You're probably not going to be spending a lot of money. Banks are starting to tighten credit. And the conference board's LEIs have fallen for nine consecutive months in a row. And now we have the ISM manufacturing and the ISM service index in contraction territory. And the yield curve is still inverted. So this implies very strong evidence that we're going to see a recession. And what's interesting, I heard Jerome Powell in some of the press conferences, he's saying, well, you know, we've we've actually pulled off some soft landings in the past. The one difference, Jerome, is you didn't have to deal with inflation in the past. And we'll get into the inflation here in just a moment. But when you have inflation that rises over 8%, it normally takes a decade or more before it comes down. And we see inflation remaining sticky and high throughout this decade, especially as we get to the midpoint later on in this decade, when the deficits, uh, we could be heading for a U.S. government debt crisis mid to later on in this decade as the debt levels approach $40 trillion and more. I mean, you're talking about a massive amount of spending, and that's something we're going to have to watch. You know, Jim, earlier you are speaking about the inverted yield curve. We spoke with ITR's Brian Bullier. They originally had, last year when we spoke with them, a forecast for a soft landing this year. They have since downgraded that, and we caught up with them to get an update on their view uh, based on the inverted yield curve and a number of other leading economic indicators continuing to move in a free fall. So they've downgraded their view for a recession in this year. And uh, But they believe it's going to be a mild one, so not a severe recession. Here's what he had to say on their outlook. It has changed, Chris. The outlook became more negative, complements of the Federal Reserve and the inverse yield curve that we went into in the fourth quarter of 2022. There's an 88% probability of a recession within 12 to 24 months. 
when an inverse yield curve appears. So we've had to downgrade our outlook for the tail end of 2023 and for all of 2024. We now think that GDP will decline two out of three quarters in 2024, and U.S. industrial production is expected to experience a mild downturn also beginning in late 23 and extending into uh, at least the first half, three quarters of 2024. And we look at consumer debt levels and what they are, and we look at the debt as a percent of their earnings. We look at whether it's credit card debt, mortgage debt. We look at the credit score ratings on the mortgage debt. I mean, we look at a myriad of factors, and they're telling us that the consumer is in uh, really good financial shape right now. And that's one of the reasons why we think the economy uh, avoids slipping into recession until late 23, and why it's going to be a relatively mild downturn. It's not like 2008, where the housing market was crashing because so many people with lousy credit had gotten all these mortgages for homes that they couldn't possibly afford. We are nowhere close to that scenario at this time. We have another uh, major difference going for us, and that is all the onshoring or the shortening of the supply chain, as some people put it, going on here in the United States. That's a powerful new political economic dynamic that is going to in our opinion, uh, bolster the economy and counter-affect some of the negative follow-on effects you'd expect to see from uh, the Fed's inverse yield curve. So again, that's Brian Bollier talking about the downgrade to their outlook for late 2023 with recession persisting into 2024, but expecting it to be mild based on the consumer metrics that they look at. But uh, again, the consensus, you know, they have a range of different forecasts that we discussed earlier when it comes to economic metrics What about the stock market? What are some of the forecasts that are being made or targets for the stock market this year? Well, if we take a look at the average of the consensus, it comes in around 4,078, Chris. That would imply anywhere from a 5 to 7% increase in the S&P this year. If you look at the different strategies out there, Lee, at Fundstat sees the S&P going to 4,750. He's probably on the high side. On the low side uh, is PMB, Paribas. They're at 3,400. And of course, you talked about Michael Kanaritz at Piper Sandler has it at 3,225. Now, what's interesting when you look at these strategists, and I think literally I read probably 30 different strategists and investment houses for 2023, the consensus is the place you're going to make money in the first half of the year is going to be the bond market. So as we head into recession, now with LAIs dropping, both the ISM manufacturing and service sector now in contraction category, bonds will begin to rally. We've already rallied in the 10-year. We've gone from almost 3.8, 3.9. We're down to about 3.5. So we're already hitting the consensus forecast for the 10-year note at 3.51. If you look at Michael Hartnett of Bank of America, He said, if the S&P gets down to 3,600, start to nibble at the stock market. That would imply about a 7% drop from where we are right now. He said, if it gets down to 3,300, which would be about a 16% drop, start to bite. And if it heads all the way down to 3,000, he said, gorge yourself and buy anything. So those are three different categories that uh, some of the big strategists are looking at. I would say the the median was 4,075 and the low is around 3,400. I think we're going to head more to the low. It depends really, Chris, if the Fed pivots. It could start getting scared 
if it starts seeing the economic numbers and the LEIs really begin to accelerate and start to drop rapidly. Now, the key to that is if the inflation numbers begin to drop rapidly, then you would see the Fed maybe go out and get dovish and saying, well, maybe we only raise a quarter of a point or, you know what, we're just going to pause at this point. And that would be bullish for stocks. However, there is a wide disparity. It's it's almost like 50% want uh, see one direction, 50% see the other. And the disparities boil down to this. Whether the recession begins in the first half versus the recession begins in the second half. The second disparity, hard landing versus mild landing. The other disparity, pivot versus a pause. And then if we take a look at the stock market, the forecasts are kind of all over the place. But whether we have single-digit gains by the end of the year or double-digit gains, and another really big one, inflation recedes and declines versus it remains sticky. We ourselves are in the sticky camp. And the big one, and I think this is really a big one, energy declines versus rises again. And even Byron Wing, we'll get to him in just a moment, he sees energy prices falling, but he says at some point in the year, we're going to hit $100 again. So by the time we get to summer, uh, we could be seeing oil prices spiking again. So those are some of the issues that we see that are problems. And if you look at the consensus, there's a lot of wishful thinking here, and they're ignoring the macro backdrop. We talked about fiscal policy now, what $10 trillion of new spending is highly, highly inflationary. We just passed $1.7 trillion of new spending at the end of the year with Republican support. So it's not just the Democrats, it's both parties are in the spending category. You've got deglobalization. As we bring manufacturing back here, it's going to be more expensive. You've got monetary policy, which is still on the inflation side because they're still behind the inflation curve. We would have to get a Fed funds rate up to 6.5% in order to really get positive rates. And I just don't see the Fed funds rate getting that high at this point. Debt levels are now the highest that we've been since World War II. And here's a big one. Housing is going to continue to fall. You think housing dropped last year? It's going to drop again this year. And the reason, high mortgage rates. You know, how many people can qualify when mortgage rates are at five and a half to six percent or in that area, depending whether you're getting a variable rate mortgage, uh, a semi fixed mortgage, or a 30 year mortgage? So, and as we've talked about here in the past, whenever you see inflation hit eight percent historically, it usually takes 10 years or more to recede. So there's too many inflationary factors. And once again, the Fed is behind the inflation curve. And if you look at the PE multiples on stocks, Chris, you're going to have to get down to that 3,000, 3,200 level where you begin to see PE multiples and dividend yields become a market uh, bargain again. So a 20 to 30% decline in stocks does not make stocks cheap. Even if you look at stocks today, and I'm even including some of the FANG stocks that have been hit hard, they're still expensive on an historical basis. I have a dividend screen that I run for a portfolio that I run. And Chris, I've gone from 30 stocks to choose from that met my criteria. I'm down to 10. 
So I've got 10 stocks in my bullpen I'm hoping to pick up where I'm I'm hoping to get yields anywhere from five to six to as high as 7%. But right now, uh, I've gone from 30 down to 10. So this is the lowest level in my portfolio of screens that I've had in three years. So again, we're talking about the forecast for 2023. The main theme that we are highlighting for this year is turbulence and volatility. 2022 was obviously a bad year. A lot of that having to do with one of the fastest rate raising cycles that we've seen in a half century, which put a lot of pressure on the very overvalued tech sector, the NASDAQ being down 33% last year. But at this point, you know, the the big thing is what is the Fed going to do and what are we going to see with inflation? As we have argued ever since 2020, we believe inflation will not only pick up as it did, but also remain at higher than average levels given the range of these longer term forces. We think that's going to continue to be the case and the consensus may not be adequately pricing that in. Let's talk about, we typically cover outside the box views. That is things that move outside of the consensus that could happen. And two people in particular, two places in particular that we look at are Byron Wien, some of his predictions and also Saxo Bank. But Jim, if you wouldn't mind, uh, tell us what Byron Wien has to say for this year. Okay, well, let's talk about 2022, because out of his 10 predictions, he got very few of them right. Uh, For example, he thought the S&P would correct by but not exceed 20%. Well, we're actually in a bear market because the S&P was down 20%. He thought the Fed uh, 10-year note would rise to two and three quarters. We actually got almost up to 4%, so he was off on that. So a lot of his predictions did not go well for 2022. So let's look at what he sees for 2023. Uh, Number one, you will see a lot of new headliner names on the presidential ticket for the 2024 presidential campaign. So you're going to see some new faces there. The Fed remains in a tug of war with inflation. So it puts the word pivot on the shelf alongside the word transitory. And real interest rates turn positive. Yeah, uh, well, it could happen, but that would imply we'd probably have to get up to 6.5% on a Fed funds rate. To me, that would crash the economy. Number three, margins are squeezed in a mild recession. Uh, he's going to hit that one. We're already starting to see it in corporate earnings reports. And by the way, in about another week or two, we'll begin the fourth quarter reporting season. It'll be interesting to see what companies are saying about their earnings in the year ahead. Despite number four, despite Fed tightening, the market reaches a bottom by mid-year and begins a recovery comparable to 2009. So that would imply once we hit the bottom, the market could be up 20-something percent from that bottom. The other thing, given the large deficits, And the modern monetary theory is fully discredited because it is now dawning on politicians that deficits have proven to be inflationary. Number six, the U.S. dollar stays strong. I question that, but nonetheless, that's his forecast. Chinese growth picks up at five and a half percent. That's going to have implications for the energy market. The U.S. becomes the largest producer of oil but also the friendliest supplier. The price of oil drops as a result of a global recession. He sees oil getting down to $50, but at some time this year, he sees a $100 spike in oil, probably by summer. Number nine, there is a ceasefire and there's negotiations in the Ukraine war. 
And number 10, despite all the things Elon Musk is doing, he gets Twitter back on the path to recovery. So some of these things are, I think, realistic. And I think more, there's a higher probability of some of these things coming true versus his 2022 forecast. So his 2022, he missed quite a few things there. In addition to that is Saxo Bank's outrageous predictions, which we also cover here just to see what they're looking at. And here's a clip of what they had to say when it comes to 2023 under the subheading of a war economy. The 2023 outrage predictions, which is what we call the war economy. And now the war economy, it sounds pretty serious. It is pretty serious. And when we say war economy, we're not just talking about the military side of things. Although, Peter, we do have a an outrageous prediction this year that is centered on the military investment and outcomes that are quite interesting, not war per se, but investment, what that means for inflation uh, potentially. But it's also about supply chains. So take us through the economic side of what a war economy implies. Well, uh, a war economy implies that you want to secure your national interest. And I think it's a fine ending to four, five decades of full-speed globalization which ended in this massive bang because globalization is about a convergence of value systems. It's an over-optimization of value change that happened to create a, a big bang with supply constraints. And we saw the fragility of our systems. So now we have the war economy because these, this convergence of values didn't happen. So now we're diverging again. We're coming back to a bipolar world in some shape or form. And this war economy Will, will drive these national interests. And we've seen it with the U.S. CHIPS Act, which is potentially, you know, I think it is the biggest industrial policy the U.S. have carried out since World War II, basically trying to take the majority of the semiconductor industry back to the U.S., reshoring it in only five years. The amounts are staggering. And you see it in Europe with the defense uh, spending estimated to double in size and percentage of GDP. We can't underscore how big this is. So again, that's Saxo Bank discussing how they're seeing something we've discussed with Peter Zion and a number of other experts on our show about uh, moving away from the era of hyperglobalization that we saw in the prior decades to a deglobalized bipolar or multipolar world. But Jim, what are some of the outrageous predictions that they're making for this year? Okay, the key theme at Saxo Bank is a world at war. This year's outrageous predictions argue that any belief and a return to a disinflationary pre-pandemic dynamic is impossible because we have entered into a global war economy with every major power across the world now scrambling to shore up their national security on all fronts, whether it is in actual military sense or due to profound supply chain, energy, and even financial insecurities that have been laid bare by the pandemic experience and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Ukraine invasion has brought a war economy mentality to Europe on a scale not seen since 1945. The EU is talking about building up their own military force and increasing military spending beyond NATO. So much of what they're talking about, the need to invest in new priorities of a war economy is going to ensure a tilt towards more inflationary risk. And especially with energy supplies, reshoring production to build local supply chains for vital goods and expanding military capabilities. So the first thing that they're talking about is billionaires will work on putting together a consortium 
that will take a look for a new energy or source of energy and lead this transition away from fossil fuels. Number two, French President Macron resigns as opposition starts to increase in Europe. And one of the things that we see, you saw it in Italy with the new president there, that is you could see more and more countries start talking about a Brexit type thing, breaking away from the European Union. Here's one, gold rockets to 3,000 as central banks fail on their inflation mandate. The market finally discovers that inflation is set to remain ablaze for the foreseeable future. In 2023, the hardest currencies receive a further blast. First, the geopolitical background of an increasing war economy mentality of self-reliance and minimized holdings of foreign X reserves, preferring gold instead. Number four, and we're seeing this talk already, the foundation of an EU armed force. Most of the European nations are now starting to increase their military budgets. And there's talking about maybe in addition to NATO, which they're not sure the United States will be is, uh, let's say, spending as much money supporting NATO. We've already pulled our carrier battle groups out of the Middle East. So the U.S. is looking more inward. So they're going to come up with their own armed forces. Number five, this gets with the banana green and ESG. A country agrees to ban all meat production by 2030, imposing a heavy tax on meat on a rising scale. you got people like Bill Gates talking about doing that and some members of Congress. The UK, number six, holds an un-Brexit referendum. Number seven, and this you could see, I've already heard some politicians talking about it here in the U.S., widespread price controls are introduced to cap official Inflation, as globalization continues to run in reverse and long-term energy needs remain unaddressed, they will apply. And all that is going to do is drive inflation higher. It didn't work in the 70s. It doesn't work. It creates shortages. But nonetheless, people do the same thing. Number eight, OPEC Plus and Chindia walk out of the IMF, agreed to trade in a new reserve asset. You already have this right now. Russia's are talking about selling its oil in rubles and gold. Uh, the Saudis are talking about doing the same thing. So you got a coalition of India, China, Russia, and the Gulf states moving away from the petrodollar to gold and other currencies. Number nine, Japan pegs the Japanese yen to 200 to the dollar to sort out its financial system. And then number 10, a tax haven ban kills private equity. A lot of these uh, offshore tax havens, the Europeans and Janet Yellen has been uh, proposing to do away with them with a minimum corporate tax. It'll be interesting now with the Republicans and control of the House if that actually gets passed. So a lot of stuff out here that I think some of the stuff is realistic, Chris. We are in a wartime economy. I mean, I think, what was it last year? We sent the Ukraine over $100 billion. So the U.S. is already involved in a proxy war with the Russians, and we're involved in an economic war. Watch what's going to happen to the chip space. One of my number one areas I'm watching for investing in 2023. 
So, Jim, after reading the consensus reports and all the uh, various forecasts by the leading investment banks, not to mention Byron Wien and then Saxo Bank, uh, what are the wild cards that you think our investors, our listeners should be aware of for what we could see in 2023? Well, right at the top of the list is still the war. I mean, we saw a uh, the Ukraine use a special U.S. missile that wiped out and killed quite a few Russian soldiers at one of their bases. So war is still at the top of the list. There's talk about, you know, the Chinese have been running very aggressive military drills in the the Chinese Straits. Populism is on the rise here and in Europe, and that has all kinds of implications for government spending. Energy, Chris, I think is one of the big wild cards. And one of the things that I have focused on for such a long time is the lack of investment. And also, you know, the, I mean, it's hard to believe a little over a year ago, they were dragging the oil executives before Congress and asking them to divest themselves of their energy assets. It was done in the EU with uh, divestment with British Petroleum and Royal Dutch. So energy is big at the top of the list. Uh, we're going to be interviewing an author of a book, The Case for Fossil Fuels. I mean, the prosperity that we've enjoyed over the last 100 years has been made possible with fossil fuels. I mean, you take a look at those big machines out there, tractors, you know, airplanes, ships, uh, machines run on fossil fuels. And that has enabled us to enjoy the lifestyle that we have today with technology. Famine. This is something that I'm a big believer in. I think we're going to see famine in, in parts of the, the world. Remember, Russia is one of the largest exporters of wheat. So the war is definitely impacting that. And the Netherlands, ESG is shutting down farming. So the famine could be big on the list. And the other thing is these banana green and ESG policies are leading to power and food shortages. Take a look at some of the power outs that we're having in the winter. And what we went through here in California, because this this policy to go green is destabilizing the grid. We're replacing reliable sources of electricity, whether it's natural gas, nuclear, or coal. I mean, China's building, I think it's something like 50 coal-fired plants. We're shutting ours down. We're shutting our gas plants down. We're retiring nuclear plants, and we're replacing them with wind and solar, which is very unreliable and very destabilizing. So, you know, uh, I'm looking at we power our house with uh, solar panels, but it doesn't do me any good because if there's a power out, they cut me off. So I'm looking at getting Tesla batteries and a natural gas generator because we see more and more of these happening in California. So that's those are some of the wild cards that could drive energy prices higher, food prices higher. I just, during the holidays, we picked up a fillets for a dinner party we were having. And Chris, I was paying th- almost $33 a pound for grass-fed fillets. I mean, wow. you know, oh, you know, over a year ago, they were a little over $20. Now they're over $30. And then California is implementing a fast food wage hike to $22. So just imagine what your burgers are going to cost or whatever fast food restaurant you frequent, what's going to happen to those costs if they start putting in $22 labor cost on fast food workers. What you're going to see is a lot more automation 
And a lot of people are going to lose their job because you just simply can't run a restaurant at $22 an hour. Now, Jim, uh, every year we also cover at the end of our forecast, uh, the dogs of the Dow. Uh, what are, I guess, how did they perform last year? As you said, you know, the Dow itself was one of the, it saw the least drawdown out of the three major indices. What did the dogs of the Dow do last year? And what are the dogs for this year? Actually, the dogs of the Dow had a positive year. They were up a little over 2%. And as I mentioned, the Dow was down about 8.8%. So the 10 dogs, these are the 10 highest yielding stocks in the Dow, topped the overall index in 2022. JP Morgan and Cisco is going to replace Coca-Cola and Merck. So Merck and Cisco are being removed. So what you have is Chevron, which has a yield of about 3.2, uh, Amgen 3.2, IBM 4.6, Dow Chemical 5.5, Verizon 6.7, Walgreen Boots 5%, 3M 5%, Intel 5.6%, and then that will be replaced. Coca-Cola and Merck are being removed. Coca-Cola's yield has dropped below 3%. Same with Merck. It's about 3.5. That will be replaced with Cisco 3.2 and JP Morgan 3.0. And this is a point, Chris, I'd like to make that, you know, people forget when things are going crazy, like we saw the FANG stocks from 2019 or actually 2017 all the way to 2021, when growth is just going up double digits a year, we forget that half of the return from the stock market over a long period of time comes from dividends. And I often cite a book I read a long, long time ago. It was called Triumph of the Optimist. It was written by a bunch of professors from Cambridge and the London School of Economics. And they studied the stock market, 16 stock markets, Western stock markets, along with Japan, around the world. And over that 100-year period, half of the return of the stock market came from dividends. I know dividends don't sound sexy. Everybody wants to get the next Tesla, Google, or Netflix. But you know, over a long period of time, it's something I learned from studying Warren Buffett. If you look at the companies he invests in, they have economic moats. They generate a huge amount of free cash flow or pay a generous amount of dividends. I mean, he's owned Coca-Cola since, what, 1988? I think he invested like $700 million. I think it's worth $9 billion now. So those are the kind of things I like and we have been emphasizing. If you've been listening to this program, one of the pivots that we made in 2011 was switching out of commodities and going to high dividend paying stocks. And I think in this decade, one of the most predictable things you can do as an investor is rely on predictable dividends of dividend aristocrats or companies that have decades, if not almost 50 to 70 years of consistently raising their dividends. Slow and steady wins the race, right? Yep. And that's exactly what I'm doing in my income portfolio. You know, I started this about three or four years ago. And one of the reasons I started it is remember four years ago, uh, we saw 10-year treasury notes get down to four-tenths of a percent. And actually, during 2020, during that brief financial crisis, you had negative yields on T-bills. 
And so, you know, we deal with a lot of uh, foundations, pensions, and retirees. And I was thinking, how am I going to get people income? Because there was really nothing on the fixed income side. So I was looking at dividend-paying stocks because I'm a big believer. That's what I own myself personally besides uh, key commodities. And so we started this fund. And my my goal was to get a 10% return in dividends. And let me define what I mean by that. Between dividend yield and dividend increase, one of my criteria is a 10% return. And I'm really pleased that since we started this, we've been averaging 9% a year in dividend increases plus yields from three and a half to four. And last year, our dividend increases were the highest ever. It hit 11.6%. So our total dividend return last year was 15%. And, you know, I'm pleased to say that we either ended flat or we're up a couple percent for the year, depending on what time you came in. And I, I, you know, if you're an investor, if you're nearing retirement, close to retirement, or you're worried about inflation, you've got to take a look at dividend increases. What do you have in your portfolio that's going up that's going to help you pay uh, those increasing food bills, increasing utility bills? We just got to notice that our utility Bill is going to be going up on the natural gas front this year, double digits. So, Chris, we've seen that in California. We have one of the highest utility rates and expenses in the country, in addition to the highest gas prices. I mean, we're still in the – Chris, what's gas now? Uh, So, national average is $3.29. In California, it's $4.44. Yeah, I remember filling my tank. I think the highest I paid – during the summer was like $7.20 a gallon. And we remember hearing stories about $8 gasoline in Los Angeles. So that's one of the reasons why I like dividends. They're predictable. It tells you a lot about the company. A company that pays a dividend has more financial discipline. And when you're paying dividends, you actually have to have the cash to pay them versus the manipulation that we often see in earnings. So I think dividends are going to be a key factor in returns this decade. Well, as we close out today's show, please remember to spread the word about Financial Sense News Hour with your friends and family and on all of your social media channels. As always, today's podcast is brought to you by Financial Sense Wealth Management, which has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. If you have any questions about our asset management or financial planning services, feel free to click where it says contact us on financialsense.com, or you can also call us directly at 888-486-3939. Once again, that number is 888-486-3939. In the meantime, on behalf of Chris Sheridan and myself, we would like to wish you a happy and prosperous new year. Until we talk again, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. The Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any companies mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.